This podcast contains swear words. Hello and welcome to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne, a podcast about art making, creativity, not giving up, and living well in the process. I'm coming from the perspective of a performing artist, but the themes and issues discussed here apply to all of us. Yes, I'm looking at you. Whether you consider yourself an artist or not, life is a creative act. I'm your host, Tara Cheyenne Friedenberg, a choreographer, actor, dancer, writer, and educator living on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations on the west coast of Turtle Island. Right now, it's been a hot minute since we released a podcast. Life is so busy now, as it is with you, I am so sure. Isn't that just a thing these days? Oh my God, I'm so busy. Try not to kind of fall into that trap, but it is hard. It is hard. So really happy to get this out to you. We've got a great interview today with the Joanna Garfinkel. Joanna is a theater maker. Joanna is a dramaturge. Joanna is a writer, thinker, really incredible human being. And I'm really excited to share her thoughts, her ideas, her inspiring words with you. During the interview, she mentions PTC. And for those of you who don't know, that is the Playwrights Theatre Centre here in so-called Vancouver. And we will link PTC's Playwrights Theatre Centre website in the show notes because there's some great opportunities. And I do encourage those who identify themselves as dance artists to look into it because in dance and theatre, I am of the belief that we do much of the same sorts of things and a lot of dramaturgy, a lot of investigating our themes and how we construct things. And before we dive into my interview with Joanna, just a call out to please like, share, review our podcast through whatever platform you enjoy, or just tell a friend. When you do hit those likes and those good reviews and those gold stars and all that jazz, it really does make a difference and makes it easier for other people to find the podcast. Really appreciate that. And if it is something you'd like to do, donations are appreciated and they go to our artists that we interview here on the show. You can go to terrashyan.com, upper right-hand corner, hit that donate button. Or we will link it in the shoe news. Welcome, my friend, Joanna Garfinkel. Thank you for being on Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) And all the way from Minneapolis, even though Joanna lives in Vancouver, it's cool that this is a semi-cross-continent you know, conversation. It is exciting to be here. And typically I am on unceded Coast Salish land, but I am currently in Minneapolis, which is the land of the Dakota people and the Anishinaabe, Ojibwe and other indigenous groups have stewarded this land in the time since. Is Minneapolis mid Turtle Island? Is it kind of in the center? Yes, it is, actually. You might think of it as being comparable and sharing a lot in common with Manitoba as far as, you know, geography and experience and weather. And if you are familiar with American geography, close to five hours away from Chicago. 
Right. So it's like driving in Kelowna. You can drive through Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I do like Chicago. When I was in high school, I lived here, not exactly from here, but I would go and take the train to Chicago sometimes, which was very, you know, very fun as a high schooler. Oh, yeah. The Art Institute. I remember going to the Art Institute. My parents took me there when I was in high school. Beautiful. And I saw a Cindy Sherman show. Blew my mind. Amazing. Oh, that's so awesome. It was. So, Joanna, you're kind of from Winnipeg kind of from Minneapolis, kind of from Toronto. I was born in Toronto. My parents are from Winnipeg, but they moved us around a lot as kids. So yeah, I lived in the States a lot growing up and I moved back to Vancouver at 30 to go to grad school to get my MFA at UBC. And I have not left. Did you know that you were not going to leave? No. In fact, I've now lived in Vancouver longer than I've lived in any city in my whole life. So I must like it here. Ooh, me too. I came here for university and I was like, I'm just going to get my degree and get the hell out of here. Still here? Yeah. Here we are. Here we are on the West Coast. What's your MFA in? It's in directing for theater. I always had, when I lived in Austin, which is the last place I lived before Vancouver, Austin, Texas, I had a real practice of doing a lot of dramaturgically focused work. I would like work as a dramaturg with a playwright and then I would be the director of the play. That was most of my practice, not all of it. And also a lot of like playing in bands, working in restaurants, swimming, um, <laughs> DJing at a radio station. Um, but I applied to that program using my work as a sort of a dramaturg slash director, a thing that I don't do as often right now. And I have some question marks around, but I feel like my directing practice was always pretty dramaturgical. Love it. Okay. Can you tell us for the listeners who maybe don't know, what is dramaturgy? Yeah. What is it? That's a wonderful question. I tell people to think about like, what does an editor do for a book, for example, as it's being developed, right? Like an editor for a novel might help the novelist with their story as it is working, uh, provide feedback, provide commentary, provide encouragement, provide research, provide development. You know, a thing also that dramaturgs do a lot in the U.S. and maybe less so in Canada is work on established plays, help to situate them, provide context. You know, those are things I'm trained and experienced in doing. I also think that a dramaturg is a really helpful outside eye, which is where it overlaps with my directing experience in education. I think that especially when I work with choreographers have a lot of experience working with outside eyes. And sometimes it's very useful to have somebody to just tell you moment by moment, this is what I receive. This is what I received from the beginning of your piece. This is what I received from this gesture or this line. I spend a lot of my time telling people what I receive, also helping people plan their process, what they might need to try to predict what might be useful for them to help them with their grants and development, because that's tied intimately with process design. And I think, um, well, I don't know, dramaturgy maintains an air of mystery, right? No one exactly understands what it is. So we can include a lot of things under the umbrella. It's kind of a superpower, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> I hope so. Definitely. You know, full disclosure. Joanna and I work together and when you're in the room, there's something really fascinating and powerful about a role that is not exactly defined. 
which gives a lot of freedom because I, I mean, tell me what you think about, you know, in theater and it's changing, but you know, you stay in your lane, you're the choreographer, I'm the director, this is the composer, yada, yada, yada. But when I'm working with you or other outside eyes in the dance, the lanes are very blurry. Oh, I believe in that when I'm able to run a project or with my own company, I think great ideas come from everyone. It's helpful always to know who's in charge, who makes the ultimate decision that's in, that's out. Like, okay, ultimately it'll be Tara, the choreographer, who makes the final call on is this in or out, but that everybody can contribute a helpful, amazing idea, line, movement, concept, image even. And yeah, that siloed business is tied to, I think, the very patriarchal myth of solo authorship, which really doesn't benefit most people in this world. So, yeah. 100% agree with that one. I create an ensemble. So even if I'm the only one on stage, yes, that's just the, I don't know, the book jacket or whatever, that there's all these people involved Mm -hmm. and your ability to kind of take all the threads and then reflect back. That's something which is so powerful and so useful. Thank you. Um, That's one of the things that I feel as if I've really developed over the years of dramaturgy. I think when you start out as a youngster, you think I need to contribute something. I need to come up with a great idea. And you feel very pressured or artists in general, not you specifically, right? We feel very pressured to come up with an idea and to have the um, inspiration, the big light bulb. But the older, the more experience I get, the more I realize the true dramaturgical utility is often just continually reflecting back and really having one's noticing awareness turned on to like see all of what's happening. If you're too busy thinking about what's next, what's the big idea, you will miss some of the amazing ideas that are present in the room. Totally. And just to come back to the patriarchal colonialism, uh-huh. it's that product product that sure pressure in the room to have a good idea. I got to pay for the air I breathe. Yeah. When in fact being in response And there's always something to respond to. There's always something to respond to. And there's something about that myth of innovation, too, that's tied to it, right? That it's hard to have the confidence to say, I just need to notice what's really happening here. And then to help encourage it and tease it out and to help it have enough space or air around it to live. But that takes time. Yeah, it does. It takes a lot of time. You know, I think some companies definitely are trying to, I mean, I'm talking about theater, Because in dance, it's, you know, (laughs) we just work in this like, well, grab two hours here and grab two hours there. And it's going to take four years to make this piece because we got this money, but we got $10. Well, 15. But in theater, the model of there's three weeks and we're going to work Tuesday to Sunday, you know. I think that model serves some people and it doesn't serve others. And one of the things about process design as a dramaturg is I try to do is to suggest alternative models. You know, I think if we write in our funding applications, this is why this three-week model won't serve us. These uh, participants, these contributors are parents and they would like to work on a modified schedule, but we're going to take the same amount of money and spread it out over six weeks. Or, you know, one of the things I can do as a dramaturg is especially with more emerging to mid-career artists to say, we can change that model. If that model isn't serving you, we just have to describe to our funders or to our communities what we're doing instead. And we don't have to perpetuate these terrible things. Like three weeks really serves very few things, except if it's maybe an established play. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, and doing 10 out of 12s 
I argue does not serve anybody. Right. You know, if you're sleep deprived and anxious, it's none of our best day or work. No, it's so true. There's something I just love the term project design. And I feel like that's something maybe as dance artists to think about, well, what do you want your process to be? I feel like that's really potent. Yeah. When I'm working with dance artists, suggesting that that's even possible to people who have not been, you know, sometimes I I like to joke, but like, you're the boss, right? You're the boss of your project. What would support you best? You know, what kind of time or feedback or development do you need? And we are often discouraged from taking that time to really think. And it might be different for each piece you work on. It might be for one piece, you need different people from different paths of experience or life experience or work experience in the room. And for a different piece, you might need extra time with the community engagement. At PTC, one of the many places I work, but one of the main places I work, you know, we have a one size fits one kind of attitude. And I'd like to spread that. Yeah, it's so important. And I feel like when you say it, it's like, oh yeah, well, of course. But I think we don't know that we have the options. I mean, I didn't when I was younger, for sure. And sometimes even now I think, well, how am I supposed to do it instead of what serves the project? What's the best way? What's going to be the most fun? Also, people don't know, you know, I recommend dramaturgs all the time because we come cheap, perhaps too cheap, but uh, you might just want to hire a dramaturg to like work on that development, on that process design piece. You might just want to hire somebody for a very short contract, you know, a few hours of having someone to think about and bounce ideas about and develop the options for your project, even before you submit a funding application potentially, or even just as you're dreaming up something and you want somebody to help you dream up all the potentials of a certain idea or piece of music or piece of theater. It's like the best art making play date for whatever you're playing. Maybe I need that for a business card. I don't have a business card, but (laughs) we'll think up something. Yeah. Like art making rumpus room. Play date. Yeah. I'm I'm sure that will only be received positively. (laughs) Right. Couldn't possibly be misinterpreted. Yeah. It's just a play date. Joanna, play date. Amazing. Tell me about, because you've touched on it a couple of times, but I think there's something really important about the idea of this planning, this playing, I'll just bring that word in, and the grant writing process, because, I mean, you've heard me endlessly whinge about grant writing, Mm -hmm. but I feel like the way you talk about and think about work actually makes the grant writing part of the project and that enlivens it and makes it a lot less grueling. I think we all stress, I mean, I just as much as everyone stress the process of applying for funding. And I realize also that it's incredibly vulnerable, like for all these artists to sort of put their hearts and their projects on their sleeves and then to be literally assessed and judged by others, by other artists, um, it feels incredibly vulnerable. And And as a result, people get really tied up in that process. And yet it's a very necessary process for us to do our work, right? Without funding, it's very difficult. And so one of the things, as I was struggling with this for myself and my own work, one of the things that I realized that the path to doing it and making it even feasible was to sort of connect it to the process design, to connect it to like, how do I want this piece to be received? What is different about how I'm hoping to build this and the impact I'm hoping it will have? And it's one of the things, and maybe that's the dramaturgy thing, is that it's very difficult when I'm working on it for myself. But when I'm reflecting back to someone else, when they tell me about their project, I can say, oh, I noticed this thing and this thing about your project or this thing about that you're doing this very unusual. 
and sort of help somebody to like circle the things that might be important to include on their funding application. When I first moved here, I knew nothing about the process of funding in Canada. I moved from the States and our system was very different. And a lot of people would not share grants at that time. There was a lot of scarcity mentality, not sharing things. So I encourage people to actually share their funding applications, to share their process, to work with each other, to remember that you're speaking to other artists. And ultimately, we do want to support each other. That's so great. And it's so important. I'm like, you want to see a grant? (laughs) I'll show you. Show you. Because I have benefited so much from other people sharing. Just like, okay, okay. Like, for example, I remember reading somebody's grant and they just, they were speaking in such plain language you know? And it's like, oh, I don't have to sound all smarty McSmarters, whatever that means. (laughs) I think at that time I was thinking, oh, I got to sound like I'm doing a master's degree instead of like you say, how do I want this to be received? Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think I spent a lot of time doing viewpoints and Suzuki training, a lot of viewpoints and composition specifically. And man, is that a good entry into just noticing? just noticing and just noticing serves one in funding the way it does in new piece creation in all aspects of art making and not looking at funding as being separate. Yeah. I notice a lot of people thinking I need to use academic language. I need to justify that I'm worthy of your gaze. Right. And that makes sense. I mean, for so many people, so many historically marginalized folks, like, of course, this experience of being adjudicated by government bodies that are largely colonial, largely white, straight, cis, you name it. Of course, that brings out those feelings of like, I need to justify myself. And I don't want to say this as an endorsement of any of those systems. I don't. Um, But these are the systems we have right now. So I like to take a like a Robin Hood attitude and try to take as much from those systems as we can and disperse it as much and as equally as we can. I love it. Yeah. It's like alchemizing. I love that word. That's fantastic. Right. And then you're like, we're going to turn this into something precious. Yes. I recently did a gig and I'm not going to say what it is. I'm like, I want to take that. Thank you. And I'm going to disperse it. So we need to do that. Absolutely. In the process of dismantling the systems, we can Robin Hood the hell out of them. Let's do it. Let's both be Robin Hood. I think we would look great in the outfits, first of all. Oh yeah. Who wouldn't? Can you talk more about viewpoints and your experience with Suzuki and your own creative process, your own theater making in relationship to those practices? I think those are amazing practices for staying warm between projects. I think that much more with theater than with dance artists. Dance artists don't have this problem, but theater artists often have a problem that they work and rehearse and pour themselves out when they're making a piece. And then there's these times in between making pieces where there isn't that same kind of regular practice. And if nothing else, you know, I think that there's loads of systems that impose this. And this is the, this is the one that worked with my younger self quite a lot. I feel sometimes nervous about the whole like guru mentality. Like I went to the mountain, which I did. I went and trained with the city company in New York and I give them a lot of credit for the inspiration and for the skills that they instilled in me. And I know how problematic it is to have any different guru system and credit on one's back. So it's not that this is the only one. This is the one that really inspired me. And I use it a lot in my teaching and my dramaturgy and 
all different kinds of things that I do. A really profound experiment that you do early in viewpoints training, um, you're taken outside as a group, you know, the group of us who are training, and you are positioned in one specific relationship to the outside. And for about, let's say 20 minutes, you just take in in utter silence and not continually observing in that moment, but just receiving. And that technology is available to us all. We could all just like take 20 minutes and go outside and experience the world as if it were art directed, scene directed, just for us. If you go outside and think of every single thing as being intentional, which I mean, it is right. Like, you know, you can receive it that way. Then it helps your noticing (laughs) to say the very least. Oh, I love that. And it is noticing that's in many ways where we need to be as performance makers. For sure. A million percent. And always when I've ever led the same exercise that I experience, there are people who have a lot more ability to, to just sit and take in and notice. And there are people for whom that there's a lot in between them and being able to do that, right? Like that urge to innovate, that urge to comment in the moment, that urge to come up with something right away rather than just to receive. So it's not suited for everyone, but if you can cultivate that skill, I've only seen it help people. It reminds me of, and I'm sure it's not an accident, meditation. For sure. Which just being with and noticing the thoughts and trying to let them pass without getting involved in them, Mm -hmm. it's holding one's focus. And I feel like it's so important, especially now, I mean, I drive my child crazy talking about screens and, you know, taking our attention, like being embodied and not being absorbed in the screens, absorbed in the scrolling for dopamine all the time. It's funny that you say that scrolling for dopamine, because I've also never experienced the kind of dopamine hit that you get in that exercise. If you're in that exercise and you're in a group of 15 people who's really noticing the world and all of a sudden, you know, a person walks into frame as if they have been perfectly cued, the like joy that you receive with that person's specific walk or outfit or, or just way of taking in what's around them as they look at the 15 people observing, um, <laughs> It doesn't compare like the true joy of receiving something in the moment. I didn't think of myself as a terribly meditative person before going into such training. And also on the other hand, the Suzuki part, because I had thought, oh, meditation is I have to sit still and be very quiet and deep and profound. And I always never was able to do that successfully (laughs) until I was doing it in the context of extreme physical challenge, extreme repetition, extreme testing of oneself against only the marker of oneself and like repetition, physical challenge, and meanwhile, repeating text and doing that juggling. It really is meditative. And it's so profound. I mean, when you just talk about it in terms of dance training, there's a lot of that doing semi-impossible things over and over and over again. But you're also talking about repetition of text. That's really interesting. Can you talk about the potency of repetition? I realize I use the word potent too much. It's another good one to like, though. And I'm also going to note that you used alchemical and alchemized and potent. And maybe there's some sort of like witch lab magician thing happening. Oh, you and your little dog too. The repetition of text. 
I think when we think about text, there's often this need to invent, we need to come up with new witty things to say. Mm -hmm. And just like with physical practice, repetition can really lead places that we might not expect. Totally. And I think for me as a much younger artist, like I went to theater school I went to Oberlin as an undergrad and much like a lot of other programs in the late 90s, there was a lot of sort of method derived, speaking of a different guru, different mountain, um, (laughs) not the mountain for me, but that guru mountain system really involved plumbing one's own personal experiences. And that involved a lot of what were at the time almost exclusively older men making a lot of young women (laughs) cry. And, uh, and that, that felt very unsafe. And so reaching some sort of altered physical and verbal and textual expression through repetition, through physical challenge, as opposed to what happened to you when you were 14, because, you know, all those of us who are in theater school, how old are we? We're babies. We're babies, you know, and I'm gendering that specific one because of who I am and who that specific teacher that I'm not referencing by name was, but there was definitely a power and age dynamic, no matter who you were in theater school, probably. And realizing that, you know, we want to experience the extraordinary as audiences. I get that. Like we don't want the mundane, we maybe get to have all the time. So we go to performance to see something like larger or outside of ourselves. But can that be achieved with means that are not exploitative or extractive? And I didn't really have all the words for that when I was getting out of theater school, but I did receive this kind of training that I'm talking about is like, oh, this is a choice that doesn't feel as extractive and doesn't feel as exploitative and doesn't have the same power dynamic. I mean, even when I trained with the company in New York, like all of their artists train right alongside of you, except for whomever is leading the session. You know, that there's a very, um, a version of egalitarian system in place there that I think that we can also expand on. And there's other modalities that I use, but I return to that one a lot. It's fundamental. And so in terms of your own work and your own creative process, uh-huh. has it morphed? Has it changed that, that modality? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I use some overt exercises and experiences from that training in the work that I do, but I don't exclusively use it. It isn't the like key that opens every lock, but I put it in my bag of tricks for sure. Also my dramaturgy practice started around the same time. Like I I got my first dramaturgy job when I was 19, which is pretty fortunate. I was on a a January term farm out essentially from Oberlin. And I went uh, to the Minneapolis Playwright Center and had a really uh, amazing experience. But Being able to break down text, being able to see the structure of something is something that I will also return to that I think a lot of artists, while they're in the middle of process and entirely fairly, they can't see the structure. And so having somebody around is like, let me tell you what I receive from your piece right now. This is or what feels like the beginning or or where is there a gap or where do we need to like turn our eyes to next? So depending on the piece and depending on the process. There'll be different things that I they look to more or less. Yeah, it totally makes sense. This is going to be like a big question. What is the difference between dance and theater? Oh, no problems. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. That's great because your work, Tara, for example, is challenging on that. That if you said, oh, well, in theater, they talk from the beginning to the end, you know, um, that can't be it. But probably the short answer is, is that people can call their art whatever they want to call it, right? And then 
we as audience or collaborators can report on how we receive it. And in the pieces that are like my own pieces that I'm not like hired on, they almost always have some part of dancing or singing in them. I used to joke like, well, that's just because people like dancing and singing. I've worked on several musicals that weren't my own and that's a different thing entirely. But I think, I don't know, the very first origins of all different kinds of performance involved some aspect of movement in music. And, you know, Aristotle thought that they were all in there. I'm not particularly Aristotelian, but all those ingredients are in theater and maybe be more useful if we just called everything performance, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to like honor expertise and there are dance artists who have spent years and years training and perfecting and honing their skills in their body. And if, you know, some theater dodos get up there, I love theater dodos, by the way, but you know, <laughs> it's a technical term, um, get up there and say, we're also dancers that might be challenging, right? That might challenge one's feeling of expertise. So maybe it's just easier to say, we are all trying to make performance. We are all trying to communicate something to an audience. And if the labels help get funding or get audiences to understand if this piece is for them or not, that's great. But, um, and that is the difference between dance and theater. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Done. Trademark. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's like use whatever you need to communicate what you need to communicate. It doesn't take away like an actor who is not you know, big air quotes, dance trained. Totally. And still dance. Oh yeah. It's not going to be the same dance as someone who's had like, you know, eight years of training or mm-hmm. 20 years of training and vice versa. Yeah. And similarly, when dancers want to speak or sing in their pieces, they might not have some of the vocal training to be the same as actors who've spent years developing their instrument. Right. And so sometimes when we come in as an outside eye, sometimes it's like, oh, you want to communicate in this way. Well, what skills can I help you acquire to help an audience receive it, right? So these things that you want to say as a dancer, and I literally do not mean you in this case, Tara, but like might need some vocal exercises that help those words literally reach the ears of an audience or a microphone to help those words reach the ears of an audience. And same with an actor who has an idea or a physical expression that they, they might need some help to make that clear and legible to an audience. I've seen you do that with non-dance trained performers. Yeah, it's like, when do you need to do a perfect triple pirouette? And when do you just need to turn around? (laughs) And how can that turn be more clear for someone to receive? Yeah, exactly. I love your use of when you're watching dance, the term legible. Can you talk about that a little bit? I feel like it could be really useful to focus. When I say something was very legible or clear, I think I'm thinking about just like with handwriting, I'll say this, this felt very clear. This is what this movement felt like it was communicating to me, just like some glyphs on a page. And I recently had the experience, a very wonderful experience of, you know, getting to sit in as an outside eye on a dance artist's work with a very accomplished choreographer next to me. You know, the very accomplished choreographer, of course, was using choreographic terminology to reflect on a moment. And then I'd be like, that was kind of like a bear. And um, it was very clear. And we were laughing because I think my job as a dramaturg sometimes is also to reflect. I always think that humans write a story onto a situation, onto a movement situation. If you have two performers hold hands all of a sudden after a time of not holding hands, an audience will write a relationship onto that situation. They can't help it. And sometimes I'm just 
trying to show with legibility, with clarity, what relationship it seems like people might read into it. And it also tells us, it tells performers and creators, you don't have to do as much work because the audience is always doing that. It's instinctive. We read and write relationships all the time and story. We just, we just can't help it. And it's a natural impulse. And thus performers and creators who feel like they constantly need to generate, they can relax that a bit because the audience is doing the other half the work and maybe hire a dramaturg to make sure the story you think you're communicating is the one that people are receiving. But like we read story into everything. You know, the three panel meme tells us how much we read story, right? And write story onto something. Absolutely. What an endorsement for hiring a dramaturg. I love it. And it's not only because I need supervision, which I totally need. We also provide that. Mm -hmm. Very good. Joanna has this great ability to, when I get sidetracked, which is all the time, um, Joanna will just go, and that reminds me of (laughs) this moment in the show that you're trying to make. But often sidetracking does have a big relationship to it. And so you can't just push through. You have to actually say there was a connection. It's not a non sequitur. Nine out of 10, it's not a non sequitur in yours or anyone else's process. It's like, oh, I see the connection. And I want to take that little gem and I'm going to write it down. It's going to be included in our work. It all ends up there. I might've told this story on this podcast before, but just in terms of everything being part of it, my director, we started working together when I started making work, Sophie Yendel. We'd have half hour, 45 minute debriefs at the beginning of rehearsal. And for the first year or two, we thought we were just wasting time. We thought we were just like, oh, we got to get to work. And then we would make a piece and then we'd come back and remount it for tour. And we would then see, oh, all those conversations are in the piece. And we didn't even notice really, because, you know, we were young in a little bit, you know, but yeah, that is a wonderful thing about a dramaturg that noticing where all those connections are. And sometimes there's often in collaborations, there's somebody who's acting as a dramaturg who isn't titling themselves that way. I'm going to do a little promo at PTC in this coming year. I'm going to be teaching Block D, a dramaturgy investigation class workshop with a small cohort. And we're really looking for people who do that, right? Who are the unofficial dramaturg in a collaboration, who are observing and reflecting and noticing and contributing like that, who want to hone their skills or to have other people to share and develop them with. Yeah, I love that. Could like a dance person who works as an outside eye a lot, could that? I sure hope we have one in our cohort. That would be great. If you know of someone, I'm speaking to your people in podcast land or you specifically, you know, send them my way. We'll have some information on PTC's website. And I'll link to that for sure. I think that as much as we can blur and de-silo what we do and share, it's just better. It's more fun. We learn so much from each other. My last question is, is there something you are doing in your life that is helping you stay creative? And it can be anything. I have maybe like a lot of people over the course of this, definitely not over pandemic, developed a lot of rituals and practices and some of them like weightlifting or, you know, like one thing that I decided this last April that every day at the end of the day, I would write one to three sentences about the day. And sometimes they're like very like clever and thoughtful. And sometimes they are just reportage and sometimes they're barely that. And I was just curious about 
And I've never been a good journal keeper. I mean, maybe there's some people who are really good journal keepers, but the concept was, and I just got like a very thin notebook. It looks like this one that I'm holding up that no one can see, but that every day I do that. And then after a year, I'd be writing underneath the previous bit of text. And I was curious if my life had seasonality to it, that if anything, if there were any patterns that I could observe or just experience. And I have a very bad memory. I joke that that makes me a very good dramaturg, that all the time I'm looking at things with fresh eyes. But one of the things that that notebook has sort of helped me with is to remember that I'll be like, oh, right, on that day, I went for one of my millions of walks because it was that time. So now I'm like over a year into this, right? So every day I'm writing underneath a little blurb that I wrote the previous day. And I, I give myself, you know, a lot of breaks. Like if I don't do it at night, I can do it the following morning. That's also still allowed. <laughs> um, that ritual, I think, is a good path to creativity, even though it is not directly one. I also really encourage cross-discipline receiving, you know, that I am a very not good musician. And I used to play in bands and things, not because I ever thought I was going to be the best, but in fact, because it was not where I'm the best, because I love virtuosity and I 100% respect expertise, but it's also very useful to put oneself in a situation where you are not an expert and you never will be one. So those would be my two, I think right now. Well, those are so good. Yeah. Being able to like not be good at something and enjoy it is oh, fantastic. so liberating. I love it. I love it so much. There's one thing about the journaling. Uh So on like April 1st of 2021, did you write underneath that the next year, April 1st? Were you writing underneath the day the next year? Is that how you're doing it? I started it just a random day in April, actually. It was the day that I got my second shot and I had a lot of optimism and I thought this will be good as we get out of pandemic. Oh, how little did I know? But I guess yesterday... I wrote three sentences about October 24th and right above it were the ones I had written the previous year. Okay. Amazing. That's fascinating. When did start doing that? And I think maybe why this time it worked after what I mean by worked is that many times I've tried to start a journal, every kind of, I was in writing school, every kind of writing teacher says journal. Anyway, the reason it was just some day, it was April, I think 23rd that I started it. So it wasn't January 1st. It didn't have the weight of resolution to it. (laughs) It just was a day and it was just a notebook. It wasn't purpose built for this. It was just a blank notebook. And then when I have traveled or gone camping or here I am in my parents' house, I've just take it with me and I have sort of like a map. And sometimes an idea gets lodged in there that wasn't ready. And now because the act of writing records it with you better, I think. And it's that brain body thing too, like writing with a pen, right? Sure. I recommend it. Other rituals I've done, I picked up a lot of habits that was very useful in that time, you know, like trying to have some form of exercise every day, writing in this little book, different things like that. I notice I'm around children you know, here with my sister's kids or, you know, back home with kids that are in my life. And you see with kids, you know, how dysregulated they get just out of routine. And we as adults are the same. We need that. We need some self-imposed routines to be our best selves in the world. And they don't have to be outside expectation routines. They just really serve us. 
Yeah, I need it. Somewhere to hang your hats. Like do this and then I do this and then I do this. And the creativity that happens around those parameters feels so much more liberated or I like the term off leash. That's my, (laughs) I like to get off leash. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Okay, how about this? What do dance artists, I'm asking you, what do dance creators and artists need from an outside eye or dramaturg that they are maybe not getting that I could help spread in the world? Oh, I mean, I think they need more of you. <laughs> Thank you. The Garfunkel factor. Somebody to reflect back, you know, in our dancey dance heads, that's a technical term, pardon me. You know, there's so much kind of abstraction or expressionistic work and we get so into like, am I, am I being a good dancer? You know, is my leg turning out enough? You know, we get really mired in that because our training is largely that. And so having somebody very clearly communicate what is being received, what they're noticing. Oh, that's fantastic. I will be spreading that in block D because as you know, I like the noticing. And I do notice that when I work with dance artists that they are so wonderfully experienced in rigor. And I really respond to that as an audience member. And they're so gripped by the pull of virtuosity that they don't stop to say, actually breaking the form here might be useful or, or changing the gaze or changing an angle, even if it isn't perfect and virtuosic form. I know you're capable of perfect and, and virtuosic form, but here is where you might want to fuck with it in order to communicate your story. Love it. Oh, that's so good. Thank you so much, Joanna. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Joanna, for taking the time to sit down and talk so much good shit. That's good shit. Please get in touch with us. We are on Instagram. Really? You are? I know. Oh, my God. Tara Cheyenne TCP, Facebook, Tara Cheyenne Performance. You can email info at TaraCheyenne.com. Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne is a project of Tara Cheyenne Performance, produced, edited, and original music by Mark Stewart. MarkStewartMusic.com. The more you create, the more powerful you become. The more you consume, the more powerful others become. It's a quote from James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits. I like it. I like habits. Keep making shit up. We'll see you next time. This podcast is effing good.